Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, where we shall this day see, laid out plainly before us by the Holy Spirit of the living God, the doctrine of unconverted elect. I was 19 years of age when I heard it for the first time, and it was such a great comfort to my heart and mind, because it makes perfectly logical sense. It reconciles the Bible together, and it solves questions that have plagued Christians for a long time as to how all of God's elect get, get to heaven, especially when they want to put all babies in heaven. If you want to put a baby in heaven, even a single one of them, then you're going to have to submit and believe to unconditional or unconverted elect. And so we're going to see that in verses 25 through 29 of Romans 11. Before we get there, let's remind ourselves that these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, deal with the situation of Israel. The apostle began in the first few verses of chapter 9, stating his continual sorrow in his heart for some of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he proceeds through Romans chapter 9, presenting the doctrine of election, starting with Abraham's eight sons. Only one of them was God's elect. Then going to Isaac and Rebekah's twins, only one was elect. He comes on down, he shows that Pharaoh was chosen by God for displaying God's wrath and his power. He shows us that he is the potter and we are the clay, that he has purposed to make some vessels to honor and some vessels to dishonor. And he explains that in order to show his wrath and to make his power known, he has endured those vessels of wrath. And then he explains in verse 24 that he has saved some of the Jews, some of the Gentiles, not all of either category. And he goes on and quotes four passages of Scripture in the next five verses. And he says in the last part of verse 27, a remnant of Israel shall be saved. Not all of Israel, but a remnant of them. And so we have the doctrine of election presented in chapter 9. In chapter 10, we have the gospel being preached and presented to us by the apostle. He says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We understood by the sermons that were preached in chapters 9 and 10 that this has to be elect Israel because the Apostle Paul would not have a heart's desire and a burden for those that God had purposed not to save. Because the Bible tells us about Paul's intent in evangelism in 2 Timothy 2.10. I endure all things for the elect's sakes. He says that, and we believe that and understand that. We know that it would be a contradiction, not only with that verse, but a contradiction with this context. If the Israel, in verse 1 of chapter 10, was all of national Israel, because he has taught us in 9.6, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So there's a distinction and a division to be made in Israel. The whole nation is are not all the people of God. There is a subset of that nation that is also called Israel, that's the elect Israel of God. And chapter 10 is about the preaching of the gospel and the benefit that the gospel has for God's elect to know that they cannot provide their own righteousness by keeping the law of Moses, but that to everyone that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, their righteousness has already been established by imputation in God's sovereign work of redemption through Christ on the cross. And therefore it puts an end to thinking the law could justify them. And the apostle works through that and explains that in detail. 
down through Romans chapter 10. And he, this is where the verses are. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how beautiful are the feet of them that preach. This is verses 14, 15, 16, 17. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the preaching of the word of God. But then he's, he points out that there's a problem, an issue. But I say, have they not heard? These elect Israelites, have they not heard the gospel? Why haven't they believed it? Why haven't my countrymen, who for 2,000 years have been waiting for the promised Messiah, the prophet that, that Moses had told them would come, why don't they believe the gospel? Haven't they read the scriptures that warned them that God would turn the gospel to the Gentiles? This is verses 19. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. And so the Apostle Paul brings up Old Testament prophecies warning his elect brethren, why aren't they believing the gospel? So chapter 9 is election presented clearly and definitively about Israel. Chapter 10 is the gospel and its role in saving men from thinking that the law of Moses could save them in any way to chapter 11, where he will deal more particularly with Israel and why elect Israelites, a large portion of them, did not believe the gospel. And so in chapter 11, and chapter 11 is one of the more difficult chapters of the New Testament, it is hard to find two men, two commentators, two preachers, that agree on Romans chapter 11. It is a difficult chapter. And it's made more difficult by the fact that they go through chapters 9 and 10 not understanding that not all Israel is of Israel. Not understanding that there's an elect Israel and a non-elect Israel. Not understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to give eternal life, but to give assurance and comfort and instruction to the people of God. The gospel does not add to or take away from our position in heaven and our name in the book of life. That was written there before the world began. The gospel is the good news and the glad tidings that we have been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I preached to you a message about reconciliation, where it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling us to himself and hath given to ministers the word of reconciliation. See, God is completely satisfied when Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross. The names in the book of life, it's the book of life of the Lamb slain, were guaranteed eternal heaven. But then he sends the gospel to tell us. Remember the illustrations that I gave you where those poor Japanese soldiers after World War II had ended that were in deserted, obscure, lonely places where they hadn't heard the news. And so they continued to fight, some for months, some for years, some for decades. And I told you about Lieutenant Hiru Onada, who fought for 30 years on an island off the Philippines because he hadn't heard the news that the war was over. The war was over when Jesus Christ died on the cross. The difference between God and man, that chasm that existed because of our sins, had been bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. But until the gospel comes, we haven't heard it. And so the gospel needed to come to these elect Jews so that they could hear it. In chapter 11, we have covered verses 1 through 6, which describe the election of grace. 
Because Paul starts out with, I have drawn a rather negative picture of Israel. And so he asks the question that his readers might be thinking in verse 1. Hath God cast away his people? Has God cast away all the Jews? No. Look at me. I'm saved, the Apostle Paul brings up. I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. See, that foreknew there is the same as the foreknowledge of Romans chapter 8 that I began with earlier today. My elect, those that I have predestinated, I have not cast them away. And he goes on and he explains, in the days of Elijah, there was an election just like this. When Elijah thought that he was the only one left, and God explained to him, No, I have reserved to myself 7,000 others. Those men hadn't reserved themselves to God. God had reserved them to him. And he says in verse 5, Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And it goes on and explains that it's entirely of grace, and it has no works involved, because those two terms are mutually exclusive by their definitions. If something is by grace, work cannot be involved in it. Otherwise, work no longer means what work means. And if works are involved, then grace can't be involved. Otherwise, grace would no longer mean what grace means. And so in verses 1 through 6, the election of grace is restated about those that God foreknew in the nation of Israel. Verse 7, what then? Verses 7 through 10 says, what about the rest? What about the rest of Israel? Well, they're not elect. They're called the rest. And what did God do with them? He blinded them and bowed down their back all way in ignorant superstition against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it describes that in verses 7 through 10 with verses 8 through 10 being quotations from the Old Testament. Then we came to verse 11. And I explained to you that to properly understand Romans 11, it is verse 11, and today it's going to be verse 28. Those are the two key verses. In Romans 11, 11, a decision must be made. Who is the apostle dealing with from this verse on? Is he dealing with the nation of Israel? Is he dealing with all Israel, elect and non-elect? Or is he dealing only with elect Israelites? And by much reasoning in those sermons, we saw clearly that it is elect Israelites because these elect Israelites can still believe the gospel. And the apostle was hoping that by his ministries, he would bring some of them to conversion. Like in verse 14, where he says in the last few words of that verse, I might save some of them. So, at verse 11, that crucial verse, we understand that it is speaking about elect Israel. That they had fallen, but they hadn't really fallen. Look at the verse. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Now that sounds like they haven't fallen. But rather through their fall. So, they have fallen, but they really haven't fallen. They haven't fallen from God's predestinated purpose, but they have fallen from gospel privileges. They have turned away from the gospel. The message that God sent out to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, there was a section of elect Israel that didn't hear it, refused it, rejected it. They fell from gospel privileges. They fell from the kingdom of heaven. They were not part of the New Testament church. 
And that's what he explains for the next 10 or 15 verses. All the way through verse 24, he explains that they were branches in the holy tree of God broken off. Broken off in what sense? They lost their salvation in heaven? Not a chance. How were they broken off? They were broken off from gospel privileges of being in the New Testament church and of the kingdom privileges of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And he explains that right on down through these verses, but especially verses 11 through 15. Now let's go back to 11 and notice something else there. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. These elect Israelites are absolutely going to be saved, but rather through their fall from believing the gospel, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. God in His sovereign pleasure has chosen to blind some of the elect Israelites so that there was not a good response by the Jews to the gospel so that the apostles would turn from the Jews to the Gentiles. That's Romans 11.11. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. The Jewish apostles would not have preached to Gentiles. When Peter first went and preached at Cornelius' house, he had to give account of that in Acts chapter 11 because Jews were not supposed to even eat with Gentiles, let alone have the kind of fellowship that Peter had with the household of Cornelius. And so... The gospel has now been directed and pushed to the Gentiles by Jewish rebellion against it. And you can read the book of Acts and read it. Acts chapter 13 is the plainest occurrence of it, where the apostle Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia across the Mediterranean from his home church in Antioch of Syria. And he's in the synagogue and he's preaching. And there were some that believed. And the Gentile proselytes that were there, they believed it. And they followed Paul and his company out of the synagogue that day. And they besought them that they would preach it again the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath in Acts chapter 13, the whole city came out. And the Jews were struck with envy and jealousy, just as promised in the last part of chapter 10, and just as promised right here. And the apostle Paul, when they blasphemed and opposed what he preached enough, he said, You have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13 explains all that. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. And that shows the gospel being redirected from the Jews to the Gentiles in the historical book of the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 13, fulfilling what's right here in verse 11. Now, as Gentiles were gathered into the church and Gentile churches expanded across the Roman Empire, it provoked jealousy among elect Jews because they saw that this was a religion of one God, Jehovah, and the Old Testament scriptures were being used and fulfilled by one Jesus of Nazareth who was being addressed as the Messiah They saw that everything they had held out hope for, the Gentiles were believing. And it was exploding. So it was provoking them to jealousy. And we saw down through those verses how wonderful it is that, verse 12, the fall of them, that is elect Israelites. Now if the fall of them, that is falling away from the gospel, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, that's the riches of Gentiles, it says so. And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles. They were diminished by these elect Israelites not believing the gospel. 
so that Gentiles would believe the gospel. And it's called the riches of the Gentiles and the diminishing of the Jews. They were diminished because that the kingdom privileges were being taken from them and given to Gentiles instead. But notice the apostle points out here how much more their fullness. How terrific is it going to be when those elect Israelites, the blindness having fulfilled its purpose, will be converted in the end. What is, how wonderful is it going to be when they're converted again? See, 11 said the same thing. It said that salvation has come to the Gentiles by their blindness, but then it will provoke those Jews to jealousy. And so as we move down through these verses, branches are broken off, and the Gentile branches are grafted in, not into eternal life, but into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and gospel privileges. And we covered that in detail, phrase by phrase, down through those verses. And the reasons being that the apostle wanted the Gentiles to respect the elect Israelites that didn't believe. He wanted them not to be conceited about the fact that they had been grafted in. He wanted them to be fearful because God could break them off as well because they weren't even natural branches. And he goes and explains this. This is an eternal life. It's impossible to be broken off from eternal life. It's impossible to lose your eternal life. It's impossible to have your name taken in the book of life. This is gospel privileges of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And unless that difference is understood, Romans 11 is closed to you. And we want to have it open to us. And so we see that difference. This broken off and grafted in is not eternal life. It's gospel privileges and they're enormous. They're wonderful to have the church, to have the Word of God, to have the New Testament Scriptures, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to enter into His rest and know that you have nothing left to do to be saved while the Jews continued to offer sacrifices on the altars in Jerusalem until the Lord took that entire edifice away in just a few years after this chapter. That got us all the way through verse 24. And I hope that that little review will help a little bit. Now we've got verses 25 through 29 to take care of, and we need to get moving. Let me read to you these six verses, five verses. Beginning at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, or unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Amen and amen. This is a passage that plainly presents to us unconverted elect. Verse 28 plainly says that they are in the election. Now, when you don't have election modified, and it simply says the election, it's an election in context, which was explained in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. They're elect. Their sins are taken away. The gifts of eternal life and the calling of God, which I introduced to you by Romans 8 when we opened this assembly are without repentance. They're absolutely sure, but they're enemies of the gospel for the Gentiles' sake of getting the gospel to the Gentiles. It's a mind-blowing verse. I was 19. I had read these Calvinistic 
theologians. I had read their systematic theologies. I had never heard of unconverted elect. Because Arminians and Calvinists are very, very similar when it comes to the purpose of the gospel. Both of them that believe, and they would use various words to describe it, that the gospel is necessary for eternal life. But it's not. Jesus Christ is necessary for eternal life. The gospel is necessary for us to know about Jesus Christ gaining eternal life for us. Jesus Christ brings life and immortality. It is the gospel that brings life and immortality to light. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. Jesus Christ reconciled us to God by His death on the cross, but it's ministers that tell us, you've been reconciled. Stop trying to be reconciled by your works. That's the difference between the two. So we know that a person logically doesn't have to believe the gospel to get to heaven. Believing the gospel is the evidence that they're going to heaven. And that's what the Bible teaches throughout. It's just that those verses have been corrupted by those that want to teach a conditional system of salvation. But look at this verse. They have to deal with it. As concerning the gospel. Now, it could not be written any plainer. As concerning the gospel. When it comes to believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are enemies of it for your sakes. But, in contradistinction to that, in opposition to that, as touching the election, God's choice of them to eternal life, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Because once God commits Himself to save anyone by putting their names in the book of life and choosing them to eternal life, He's not going to go back on that promise. That's, That's verse 28. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to verse 25. This is a wonderful passage. I'm thankful for hearing it when I was 19 years old. Listen, everyone, everyone believes in unconverted elect. Walk up to a Calvinist or an Arminian and say, how do babies get to heaven? By the grace of God. But they've never heard the gospel. But they've never believed the gospel but they've never made a confession of faith, but they've never been baptized. Oh, those things aren't necessary. It's by the grace of God. Thank you. You just don't have a verse to teach what you're saying, but it's the truth. You know, The next thing you should ask is, would you show me the verse that teaches that? And they don't have one. Well, we have them. It's right here. This teaches that believing the gospel is not how a person is elected or gets to heaven. It is by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, the deliverer that is described in this context that comes out of Zion and puts away their sins. That's how you get to heaven. Oh, Lord, thank you. That's why I meant it was so logical when I was 19 years of age to hear, okay, now election makes sense. And the role of the gospel makes sense. They are two different things. This is God choosing us for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and putting our names in the book of life, and He's already glorified us as far as His purpose is concerned. But the gospel is the message, the good news, the glad tidings of what God and Christ have done for me so that I can know what has been done on my behalf and what I can do for God to please Him. And it all makes sense. You know, it's scary to think about believing the gospel as necessary for eternal life. How much of it do you have to believe? Because Christians vary in the amount of gospel they believe depending on how 
faithful their pastors have been or what denomination they're part of. I mean, some of them start to border on, you know, are you going to pick on Lutherans? Can a Lutheran get to heaven? I'm, I'm talking about a person that believes that the gospel is how you get to heaven. Can a Lutheran get to heaven? Do they have enough about Jesus Christ? You know, they do believe in baptismal regeneration, that by sprinkling some water on a baby, you regenerate them. Can that? Can a Lutheran get to heaven? They don't know. Well, there might be some of them. Well, that's all nice, but we better have book, chapter, and verse for everything we believe. The amount of truth or the correctness of truth that a person believes doesn't have a thing to do with their eternal destiny other than a measure of evidence. I'll tell you that Judas Iscariot held a body of truth that is superior to anyone sitting in this room. But he went straight to hell. Truth is not the measure of whether a man goes to heaven. We call people heretics from time to time because we use the Bible word the Bible way and people think we're saying they're going to hell when we call somebody a heretic. The thought hasn't even crossed our mind that they're going to hell when we call them a heretic. All we mean by the word heretic is they're holding a false position on a Bible doctrine. That's all the word means. Because it's not the correctness of truth, it's not the amount of truth that determines where you go. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's why Galatians could go to heaven, even though they had added circumcision to the finished work of Christ, and Paul said they had fallen from grace. They hadn't fallen from grace in Romans chapter 8. They had fallen from the correct doctrine of grace, because they were adding circumcision to the finished work of Christ. But they went to heaven. The apostle Paul didn't warn any of them that they were losing their place in heaven. He was warning them that they were confused in their doctrine, and it made Jesus Christ work of none effect. Because they had added circumcision to it. Verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. He's going to draw a conclusion here of all the material that he's brought to us in verses 11 through 24 as he's talking about Israelites falling and Gentiles being grafted in. I would not have you to be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is something that has to be revealed from God or you would never figure it out. In the Bible, a mystery is not something that we can't know. A, bi- a mystery in the Bible is something the natural man can't know. But God's revealed it to us. And there's lots of mysteries in the New Testament, and we understand them, we know them, we believe them. Because the Bible tells us about them. I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. So he explains the reason why he's about to explain what he will explain. Now this passage right here, this section of verses right here, is used by many to teach that there is coming a gigantic revival of the Jews at some time in the future. And most of those who believe in this revival of the Jews and an entire generation of Jews being saved some 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul wrote this chapter will also involve their restoration to their land in the Middle East, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of a third temple, and their restoration to national preeminence in the world. It all goes together, and they pull it from these verses. It's incredible. It is a Jewish fable. None of it is true. The land is heaven, and it's been given to us. The seed is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's us. 
The enemy's defeated. Our sin, death, and hell, and they've been defeated. All nations of the earth being blessed by the Jewish seed through Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ and us meeting here today like we are. And those are the four promises made to Abraham, and they are all fulfilled spiritually, and Abraham even understood that. When, when God would tell Abraham, look north, south, east, and west, I will give all this land to you and your seed. Abraham never owned enough ground to put the sole of his foot on it, and Stephen preached that in Acts chapter 7. He never looked at that sandy piece of desert out there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea as anything to be desired. The Hebrews 11 tells us what Abraham was looking for. He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He looked for a heavenly country. Those are Jewish fables to get our minds off of heaven and to get our minds off the Lord Jesus Christ and onto this earth and onto an earthly temple and an earthly throne and to take away the glory from the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God reigning as the son of David with a rod of iron right now and he has been for the last 1940 years. It's unbelievable what they've done and they do it out of this passage along with a couple of other passages. But I hope I can show it to you that it is nothing like that at all. Look at what it says. I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you overlook the fact that there's going to be a gigantic revival of the Jews in the latter days. It doesn't say anything like that. It says, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. And has he already explained what that means? Hasn't he already told them, be not high-minded in verse 20, but fear? Don't you get puffed up about Jews not believing the gospel that are God's elect. So I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to explain it more perfectly than I have thus far. I've already explained that those branches that were broken off were holy. Verse 16. Verse 17. I've already explained that they're holy, but I'm going to make, I'm going to be very plain now. I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery, this thing that God's going to reveal to you right now that can be understood, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That, I don't want you to be wise in your own conceits. Don't be puffed up thinking that you're something special. God has done something for a short period of time in order to get the gospel to you. Verse 25, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. This What Israel? Elect Israel. Blindness in part has happened to elect Israel. Some of elect Israelites believed. The Apostle Paul believed. 3,000 at Pentecost believed. Several thousand the next day believed. The church at Jerusalem was quite large. There were believing elect Israelites during this period of time, but there was a part of them that were blind to the gospel that did not believe. And we have already covered that, so I don't feel the need to explain it further right now. It's been covered from verse 11 all the way down through verse 24 that they have fallen. They've stumbled to fall, but they haven't really fallen. Remember? Verse 11, they've been broken off that Gentiles might be grafted in. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. So part of elect Israel is blind to the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now what in the world is the fullness of the Gentiles and when will it occur? When was the kingdom of God given to the Gentiles? in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies at the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you remember the parable that I preached to you a couple of weeks ago? Matthew chapter 21, the parable of the householder. A king has a vineyard. He gives it to servants, meaning the Jewish nation. 
And then he sends other servants to gather from them the fruits of that vineyard. And they kill them and abuse them. And finally he says, I'll send my son. This is Matthew 21, the last 15 verses of that chapter. Then he sends his son and they say, ah, this is the heir. Let's kill him. Then the vineyard will be ours. So they kill the son of the king. This is the son of God. It's the Jews killing him after they had killed the prophets and apostles that came along with him. And Jesus asked his audience, what will the Lord of that vineyard do? They say, well, he'll miserably destroy those murderers and give his vineyard to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And Jesus said, that's right. And he said, if you'll fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you, I'll grind you to powder. And he says, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you, speaking to his Jewish audience, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And it was tied in with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the destruction of that city. Matthew chapter 22 goes on to describe a king having a marriage feast for his son. And he sends out his servants to bid those that should come. And who was bid first? The gospel went to the Jews first. And they made light of it. This is Matthew 22 verse 5. They made light of it. And so the king said, why aren't there any guests for my wedding? This isn't the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the gospel church. This is sitting in a church like this. Why don't the, Jew, the Jews aren't interested? Why aren't there guests? And he said, well, they didn't care about it. And it says he says he will send his armies and burn up their city because they didn't care about his gospel. And so he sent his servants into the highways and he said, whoever you can find, compel them to come in. And guess what riffraff he found out there on the highways? You and me, the Gentiles. The gospel was fully turned over in conjunction with the destruction of Jerusalem because then there was no further center for Jewish worship at all. The temple was gone, the altars were gone, the priesthood was gone, it was all gone. The, the Holy of Holies, the veil, the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the whole bit was gone, leveled to the ground by the Roman armies in 70 AD. One generation after the Lord Jesus Christ said, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So here we are. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Well, what in the world is the fullness of the Gentiles. We don't have to go outside Romans 11 to find out what fullness is referring to. It has already been used in verse 12. Now, if the fall of them, I'm going to change some of these pronouns, which I've already taught you how to do, so that you can follow through the verse, because I don't want you to be confused. Now, if the fall of these elect Jews be the riches of the elect Gentiles, and the diminishing of the elect Jews, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more the fullness of the elect Jews. There's fullness used right there about the Jews, and fullness is used about the Gentiles in verse 25. We don't need to look any further. What does fullness mean in verse 12? It means conversion, or the gospel, or them coming back into kingdom privileges. That's what it's talking about. How did they fall in verse 12 in the first half? And how were they diminished in the middle clause of that 12th verse? They lost the gospel. They were blinded to it. And so their fullness would be, it's a qualitative term. It's not a time duration term, and it is not a quantitative term. It is a qualitative term. It is describing the opposite of being diminished. And it's not that they were diminished in numbers. They were diminished in faith. They were diminished in belief. They had withdrawn from them the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel privileges attended with it. And so the fullness of the Jews would be when they believed again. This category of blind elect Jews. 
And so what does it mean in verse 25? When the conversion and gospel privileges has been fully directed to the Gentiles. It fully come in. Not fully ended. Not fully endured. But fully come in. When had the gospel been fully redirected to the Gentiles? The blindness then will have no longer any purpose, which is consistent with the whole chapter. There is no longer any need for elect Israelites to be blind once the gospel has been redirected to the Gentiles. And when did it get redirected? Around the same time as the destruction of Jerusalem. Why do we say that? Because Jesus said this. Well, I've already given you the two parables in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, which tied it in with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem when the vineyard would be taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. But Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. And the end in Matthew 24, verse 14, is not the end of the world that we're expecting. It is the end of the world of that time, the Jewish state, the city of Jerusalem. Because Matthew 24 is describing that temple being torn down and not two stones left attached to each other. Was the gospel of the kingdom preached in all the world for a witness before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Absolutely, by ten testimonies in the New Testament. Ten different testimonies in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, it was preached in all the world. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, it was preached to every creature under heaven. Romans chapter 10 and verse 18, in all the world. Many testimonies to that. Mark chapter 16, and so they went everywhere and preached the gospel. They fulfilled exactly what Jesus told them to do. The apostles did. And so the fullness of the Gentiles is when the gospel, when they're believing the gospel, when there has been an an ingathering of Gentiles into the New Testament church, it's the fullness of the Gentiles. It's been fully believed by them. It's made its complete transition. It started off in little baby steps. Cornelius, Samaria, Paul with his ministry. But then it exploded so that as we get to the end of Paul's ministry and toward the end of it, statements are made such as, he that has turned the world upside down has come hither. Because it had been pre the fullness of the Gentiles when it was believed by the Gentiles. And that was in one generation's time. It's the best explanation for the word fullness. And what this is talking about is verse 12 where it is the opposite of being blind. It's having your eyes opened and being converted. And what's the fullness of the Gentiles? When the Gentiles had their eyes opened and believed the gospel. And they had the riches of the kingdom of heaven and the riches of the grace of God through the gospel brought to them. And this blindness that had happened to part of elect Israel was only going to be true until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Because then its purpose would be lost. The purpose was stated in verse 11. Right. To get the gospel, to get the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. Right. And once that happened, there was no longer any need for it. So it was lifted. Amen. Someone will say, well, I think that the fullness of the Gentiles means when the last Gentile has been converted. Then what you're saying is that elect Israelites have been kept blind to the gospel for 2,000 years. Can you show me one Gentile that's been converted in the last 2,000 years because of blind Israelites? There are none. May I ask you, 
Where were the Jews, the elect Jews that were blind, that led to your conversion? Elect Jews not believing the gospel didn't contribute to your conversion whatsoever other than this transitional generation when the gospel was redirected from the Jews to the Gentiles. Chapter, verse 12 and verse 25 go together so well and explain to us the fullness. When the conversion of the Gentiles is come in, when the salvation of the Gentiles is come in, when you can see the Gentiles filling out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you can see the Gentiles building again the tabernacle of David, as James explained in Acts chapter 15, the tabernacle of David, the restoration of David's kingdom, is not something in the future. It was something of that generation. Acts chapter 15, James stood up and brought to a conclusion the council at Jerusalem by saying, this is the prophecy of Amos, when he said, that the tabernacle of David would be rebuilt by Gentile converts. We are part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of the kingdom of David. We are part of the kingdom of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. It was started in that transitional generation between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. by Gentile conversions. When that was done, there was no longer any need for elect Israelites to be blind to the gospel because the purpose for their blindness, which is stated in verse 11, which is stated here in verse 25, which is stated in verse 28, and which is stated in verse 30. All four places says that these elect Israelites were blind for benefits of Gentile conversions. Notice verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. And you've got to notice that little phrase there, for your sakes, their sakes. Then, the gospel would have never been preached to the Romans if it hadn't been for a redirection of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's the whole issue right there. So we have Acts matching up with Romans, and it all fits perfectly. We all know that that 40-year period between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. in Hebrews 9.10 is called the time of reformation. That's the reformation we care about. That's the reformation we appreciate because the worship of God of the Old Testament was changed to the worship of God of the New Testament. For 40 years, they ran simultaneously side by side. Jesus Christ was preached. The temple still stood. Sacrifices were made. The Apostle Paul even would go make a sacrifice. They ran side by side. Then the Old Covenant was taken away, just like Hebrews says it would take be taken away. That's why it was called Old. And that's why the other one was called New. And wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Amen. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. Well, what, is, what Israel has been under consideration since verse 11? A holy Israel. Elect Israel. So all elect Israel is going to be saved. Just by looking at verse 28, you know what he's talking about. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sakes. They're saved. They're unbelieved, saved people. They're unbelieving, saved people. You can't avoid it. That's what we have here. We have blind, elect Israelites saved. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now it's in the future tense. 
And this is where they go running. It's in the future tense, and so it's got to be out there at least 2,000 years. Because obviously nothing's happened in the 1st century, 2nd century, 8th century, 14th century, or 20th century. And so all Israel shall be saved. Well, you know we love those little adverbs, so and as. When you're in Romans chapter 5, and it says, For as, by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, What are those two little adverbs there for? What is the as and so therefore in those two clauses? To say that in the very same way as described in the first clause is the way that it happens in the second clause. As Adam was the sin representative of the human race and stood in as the federal head of all men and women, boys and girls that would descend from him, so the Lord Jesus Christ stands in as the representative and head of his people. In the very same way as so... But so as is just as powerful. It's two little adverbs that mean in the way described. And so all Israel shall be saved. Where's the as? Oh, it's right there. As it is written. And then the Apostle Paul quotes two passages from Isaiah. First of all, he quotes Isaiah 59. Then he quotes Isaiah 29. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is where they get a little overly excited. The Lord Jesus Christ the Deliverer is going to come out of Zion. Because it says it's future tense. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. That's future tense because of the word shall. And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's future tense. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. That's future tense. So in those two verses, there's three future tense verbs. And so they get all excited. At some time in the future, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and He's going to save the whole Jewish nation and reestablish them and make a new covenant with them. They're going to be God's preeminent people again. And blah, 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 blah. Even though the whole New Testament says that the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles was ripped down once for all in Ephesians chapter 2. We're the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians chapters 3 and 4. The Jerusalem that is on this earth is compared to Hagar and Ishmael, cast out. She's a bondwoman. The Jerusalem that we're connected to is above, which is the mother of us all. These are Jewish fables. These are Jewish fables of their preeminence. And that God has a special place for them in the future. Prove it from a Bible. There was a covenant made with Israel. Past tense. The book of Hebrews is all about that covenant. Why is it in the future tense? Because Isaiah wrote it. And the Apostle Paul quotes accurately. And that is why when I started this chapter, I spent an entire sermon giving you some rules of interpretation that we know that are necessary for understanding Romans 11. Joel said, in Joel chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, you're going to know where I'm going in a second. In Joel chapter 2, Joel wrote, It shall come to pass in the last days, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your handmaidens shall prophesy, and your young men shall dream dreams, and so forth and so on. 
Now, when you come and read that in Acts chapter 2, it's still in the future tense. And Jimmy Swaggart and others get so worked up. Benny Hinn gets so worked up to read the future tense in Acts chapter 2, and I've explained this so many times, I'm almost ashamed to say it again. But when Jimmy Swaggart and Benny Hinn and other charismatics find in Acts chapter 2 the future tense about God pouring out of God shall pour out of his spirit, and your young men shall dream dreams, and this and that, all in the future tense, they say to their audiences, that's us. There's this little problem. Peter said, this is that. Peter said, everything in Joel 2 is being fulfilled right now on the day of Pentecost. You ask me, then why is it still in the future tense? Because Peter is quoting Joel, and he's quoting Joel correctly. And Joel was in the future tense because Joel saw it 500 years before it happened. Of course it was in the future tense. There's five examples of those in the New Testament where they are prophecies from Old Testament writers that are left in the future tense when the New Testament writer quotes them. But it's not future tense to the New Testament writer. It was only future tense to the Old Testament writer. Please see that without me having to spend another half an hour explaining it. It's a wonderful point of interpretational truth. These future tense verbs in verses 26 and 27 are only future tense to Isaiah. The covenant that God made with the Jews was the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you want to take glory away from Him? I will tell you a group of people that want to take glory away from Him. They are the Jews. And they're Jewish fables. Because they want another covenant. They don't care about the covenant of His death. They don't care about the covenant of His blood. They don't care about the covenant of eternal life. They want national supremacy. And I am not anti-Semitic because 90% of them aren't even Semites, according to some of their own suggestions and hypotheses about where the Ashkenazi Jews came from. But that isn't the issue at all in this passage. All we want to do is submit ourselves to the Word of God. And listen, a deliverer came out of Zion, and a deliverer turned away the sins of Jacob, and a deliverer made a covenant with those people, and a deliverer took away their sins. And when did that happen? It happened at the cross of Calvary. And that's what we're going to defend. And that's what the whole New Testament talks about is what took place at Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ came from Zion. The Son of David came and gave Himself a ransom for His people. The angel told Joseph, Mary shall have a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He wasn't talking about something 2,000 years later. He was talking about what Jesus would do on the cross. When Jesus sat at the Last Supper and what we're going to say today later, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This is the covenant that I make with Israel. This is the covenant to take away their sins. The shedding of my blood. And so all Israel shall be saved. All elect Israel shall be saved. Those that believe the gospel and those that don't believe the gospel. The Apostle Paul and other fervent, zealous Christians of his era, of the elect Israelites, and those that were enemies of the gospel, as verse 28 explains. And the Apostle Paul appeals to two prophecies about Jesus Christ coming as the Deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah of His people to take away their sins. When did Jesus take away the sins of elect Israelites? At the cross of Calvary. The same time He took away the sins of elect Gentiles. 
The Apostle Paul saw all of it at the cross. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that sometime 2,000 years in the future, Jesus Christ will come into the world. No. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. There he was a Jew. When did the Apostle Paul get saved from his sins in a legal sense? When Christ Jesus came into the world. And so all Israel shall be saved. It's in the future tense. Those are Paul's words. So all Israel shall be saved. If I say to you, I was saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved, I hope that none of you are confused. If you want to figure it out, it's just listening to the five phases of salvation and seeing them in the Bible because the Apostle Paul said all that. He said he was saved with God's purpose before the world began. He said he was saved at the cross of Calvary. He said he was saved when he was washed with regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He said he was still in the process of being saved by being faithful to his calling. And he said, my salvation is nearer than when I believed. Meaning, he had a salvation that was still future. All this is saying is what John 5.24 says. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Three phases of salvation in one verse. John 5.24. The Lord Jesus Christ explaining there, and we shouldn't have any problem with that whatsoever. And so all Israel shall be saved. When all of elect Israel stands before God, every single one of them is going to be saved, even this partly blind, this part here of elect Israel that was blind. Because according to the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus Christ came and took away their sins. Because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God had purposed to save all of his elect Israelites, the remnant that he would save. And though he blinded some of them for a period of time to get the gospel redirected to the Gentiles, they would all have eternal life. That is what those verses are saying. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. I hope that all of you understand the prophetic perspective that I just explained to you about the future tense verbs. It is one of the most precious things in interpretational hermeneutics of the New Testament. And I know that those of you who know me well know I'm bothered right now because I want to take more time to make sure you understand it, but I'm going to trust that past efforts will accomplish that fact in this short repetition. When a New Testament writer appeals to an Old Testament passage to describe something that is happening right then and there, because he's quoting from the Old Testament, it will be future tense verbs that are being used. And he will accurately quote the Old Testament passage in its verb tenses, which will still be future. And if you're reading your Bible in a hurry, or if you have succumbed to Jewish fables, they will grab those future tense verbs and try to push something out into the future for their national restoration of preeminence over Gentiles. But it's not there. 
The deliverer coming out of Zion is the Lord Jesus Christ and turning away sins from Jacob and taking away their sins is all happening at the cross of Calvary by the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who finished the work of redemption and sat down at the right hand of God because he had nothing else to do in the matter of taking away sins. He had done all that there was to do. And that prophetic perspective, because it's the prophet, the Old Testament prophet's perspective of the event that puts it in the future tense. But when the apostle is quoting the Old Testament prophet, but he's saying it's right now, like in Acts 2, like in Acts 15, like in Hebrews 8, like in Hebrews 12, and like right here, he's describing an event that had happened. But Old Testament prophets were all looking forward to it, especially Isaiah chapter 59 and chapter 27 about these verses right here. Now verse 28 is concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sakes. And what's been stated down through here is they're blind. They have stumbled and they have fallen, but they haven't fallen from God's redemptive plan. They have been cast away. They have been broken off. These are the expressions used from verse 11 to verse 28. They're stumbling, blind, cast away, broken off, Fallen as concerning the gospel. Not eternal life, but as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. And see, there's that little phrase again, for your sakes. Why was a generation of Jews blind to the gospel, though they were God's elect, in order to get the gospel to the Gentiles? Chapter 10 gave it to us by prophecy from the Old Testament. Verse 11 of this chapter said it, and it's been said down through here so far. Verse 25 said it. Verse 30 says it. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. It was the unbelief of Israelites that brought mercy to the Gentiles. What mercy? The gospel being redirected to them because the Jews wouldn't have preached to them. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Here are enemies of the gospel that are in the election. And the election has already been described back there in verses 5 and 6. It's an election of grace. It's not of works. It had a remnant in Elijah's day. It had a remnant in Paul's day. It's the election that was described in chapter 9. That God has vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. It was the election of Romans chapter 8. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? So when it just says, in the election, without modifying it, it's the election that's been described. The election of grace by God in Jesus Christ for the eternal redemption of our souls. As it's described in other places in the New Testament. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. You should understand every word of that. When it comes to the gospel, they are blinded to it, and they're enemies of it. They don't believe it in order for the Gentiles to get it. But, in opposition to that restriction of blessings upon them by God, but, as touching the election, as far as being God's elect, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. There is an elect section of Israel... They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, but that elect section of Israel is partly because God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would always have a seed that would be his elect. And so they're beloved by God. God loves them, and it's partly because 
He has promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to set His love on some of their seed perpetually, which He did, so they're in the election. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't go back on what He has committed in the way of the gift of eternal life and the calling of eternal life, even when there are some that do not believe the gospel. And that all makes perfectly good sense because we believe in unconditional eternal life. That the gospel or the good news or the information that comes to us through preaching tells us what God has done for us and what we should do for God. That doesn't impact eternal life other than to tell us about it and by believing it and by obeying it, we show the evidence and the fruit of eternal life. Like I sent you yesterday, that short little statement from Samuel Richardson, one of the signers of that London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1644, nearly 300, nearly 400 years ago, one of our fathers in the faith, when he wrote his work, Justification by Christ Alone, you couldn't put it any better than, than, uh, Brother Samuel Richardson in putting it all in the Lord Jesus Christ, the deliverer that came out of Zion to turn away ungodliness from Jacob and to take away their sins. He did that on the cross of Calvary. It's not something yet to happen. It had already happened. But to Isaiah, it was future. And here we have unconverted elect. And what a subject that is. And I am so thankful for having heard that combination of terms when I was 19 years old. Let me go through the little exercise again. Ask an Arminian or a Calvinist. Do babies go to heaven? Yes, of course. I can't imagine God killing a baby and sending it to hell. Or at least He wouldn't do it to all of them. Okay. How do they get there? Since they can't hear, understand, believe the gospel, confess Jesus Christ with their mouth, or be baptized, or do anything. Because the Bible says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. How do they get to heaven? And hopefully, they'll say, by the grace of God, and you can say, thank you. That's what we believe. And then you can ask, where is that in the Bible? I don't know where it's at, but it just seems right to me. Well, it's right here in verse 28. Enemies of the gospel, yet in the election. Because truth, and the amount of truth, and the correctness of truth, is not how we get to heaven. Look at the New Testament. Do you know what some of those people believed? Do you know how many errors they had imbibed? Do you know what was going on at the church at Corinth? Did that impact their eternal destiny at all? Abusing the Lord's Supper, denying the resurrection of the body, abusing the gifts of the church, and so forth and so on. Harboring an incestuous fornicator. Did the Apostle Paul question their salvation? No, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he described those Corinthians that were already dead because God had judged them with physical death, he said God has chastened them that they will not be condemned with the world because it's the proof that he loved them. Amazing statement in 1 Corinthians 11 when we read it. Unconverted elect. This makes logical sense to those grasping unconditional eternal life by God's grace in Christ. This is a distinguishing mark of our church. 
This is a distinguishing mark of other churches in this country, a rare group, a small group of Baptists in this country that believe this particular point. They may not preach it from the same places that we do, but we preach it from this passage. And what I've taught from this passage is that there is not this group of unconverted elect Israelites extending out for 2,000 years. It was a transitional generation to get the gospel to the Gentiles. There is no basis for it extending out for 2,000 years other than a misinterpretation of the words until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Because the purpose of their blindness was done in one generation. It happened in just a few years. Unconverted elect. It is one of our seven proofs that eternal life is unconditional. You know, when we go through the seven proofs that eternal life is unconditional, we start with man doesn't have the ability or the desire to please God in any way, and we end up with this is the only plan that gives God all the glory for salvation. That's number seven. Number six is there are examples in the Bible of men saved eternally without conditions. And this is one of them right here. No matter what you do around this verse, look what you end up with. Concerning the gospel, enemies. The election, beloved of the Father. They're unconverted, elect. The other generation that was an unconverted elect is in 1 Corinthians 10, and it's not far away, so quickly look at it. Let me remind you of that other group of unconverted elect. See, the only way that an infant can get to heaven, the only way that an idiot, you know, a child that's born mentally retarded where they cannot comprehend or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can get to heaven is by the pure grace of God through Jesus Christ. And we just believe that that's the way it's done for everyone so that we're consistent. We don't have two different ways to heaven. We don't have two different kinds of salvation. There's one salvation. But the gospel is not part of it. The gospel brings us the glad tidings of that salvation. The Bible tells us not to speculate about the secret things of God. In Deuteronomy 29.29, Moses told Israel, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. So we do not go out and create unconverted elect running around everywhere. We understand that throughout the Bible, election is known by faith followed by good works. And that's what we expect, that's what we preach, that's what we teach, and that is how we describe God's elect. They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the common thread and the foundation and the the basis of knowing eternal life throughout the New Testament. But there are exceptions to remind us as one of the seven proofs that eternal life is unconditional. Here's another one. This is the generation that came out of Egypt under Moses. Do you know about this generation at all? It was probably two million because it describes them as being 600,000 footmen. Well, if you have 600,000 footmen and you have children too young to be footmen and you have men too old to be footmen and then you have all the women, it's at least 2 million. Out of those 2 million people, how many believe the gospel by the Bible's definition and made it to Canaan? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Now that group that came out of Egypt is called the Church of God of the Wilderness. 
Is that church a church that only had two saved members and 1,999,998 unsaved members? I don't care what percentage you want to pick. Go ahead and say that only a quarter of them by this text. Now, this text is going to use the word all, but let's say that you want to limit the word all to only 25% of them. That's 500,000 unconverted elect because they didn't believe the gospel. Hebrews 4 says the gospel was preached to them as well as it is to us, but it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. They had the land of Canaan right before them and they wouldn't take it. 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, this is writing to a Gentile church in Greece. Moreover, brethren, let me say it again. This is the apostle writing to a Gentile church in Greece. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. Oh, here's something else we're not supposed to be ignorant of. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. This is just like the Corinthians. Do you know in the next chapter, the Corinthians will have some Corinthians that are just like these Israelites that came out of Egypt? The ones that I've already mentioned. Many were weak, sickly, and some slept. They were already dead in the church cemetery, just like these Israelites were overthrown in the wilderness. But they ate and drank of Christ that followed them. These in the Old Testament are called the children of God. These in the Old Testament are called the loved of God. They are, God, they are called God's church. Don't you put all them in hell just because they didn't take the land of Canaan. They were foolish. They were rebels. Just like the Corinthian saints were foolish and rebels and abused the Lord's Supper. But here's another category of a generation that the Apostle Paul did not want Gentile readers to be ignorant of, to look at them and to think upon them in too low of terms because they were gods. But God was not well pleased with them. Have you ever met any other Christians in your life that you believe by certain things that were done at times in their lives were God's elect, but then later lived such a life that you knew they weren't pleasing to God and they died in that condition of not pleasing to God, being pleasing to God? Of course you have. Does that take away their eternal life? No, they just miss God's best for them in this life. And Lord, help us get all of it. We're thankful to you, Heavenly Father, for eternal life, but we want the best of this life. We want the life and to have it more abundantly that Jesus Christ described in John chapter 10 and verse 10. It is an error to draw from these examples the proposition that everywhere we turn and look, we see unconverted elect. And that is what this other group of Baptists have done. I have heard them say they've never met a person in their lives that, weren't, that wasn't God's elect. Do you know what that's called? It starts with the, the letter U. Universalism. There's different ways to get to universalism. And that's a way to get to universalism. The Bible describes that Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the general proposition of the New Testament, and that is the one we stick with, though the Bible does show us that there are exceptions. 
But those exceptions are short-term exceptions. We can follow this generation down through time, and while it may have started out this big, with the vast majority or all of them being God's elect, that election shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. We get to Isaiah chapter 6, and what percentage of the nation is now elect? 10. 10%. Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 13. And so we leave it there. But brethren, I want to teach you, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is all sufficient for the salvation of His elect. Who shall lay anything? Who? You? Who? The devil? Who? The Pope of Rome? Who shall lay anything? What? Your sin? A condition? Something you need to do? A sacrament? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And how does He justify? By the blood of the cross. It all focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ and God's choice of us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's touching the election. We're beloved of God. And praise be to God, because of this generation that lost their gospel privileges, we have those gospel privileges. Though we be wild olive branches that hardly belong in the tree, we've been grafted in. Praise to God Almighty. He has not only elected us, In the second half of verse 28, he has also caused us to love the gospel in the first half of Romans 11, 28. And his gifts and calling are without repentance. You should be so absolutely sure of eternal life if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made such a difference in your life. Be thankful to him and see the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God sent his son and didn't withhold him and didn't spare him, but sent Him, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Not one of God's elect, not one of God's predestinated children can ever lose a single part of their eternal destiny in heaven because it was predestinated to them based on the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will not repent of such a gift. He'll never change His mind. He'll never withdraw because He's committed. He has committed to the salvation of you and me, His only begotten Son. And in Him, everything else will follow. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And may you make your calling and election sure with me. And may we as a church of Gentiles be thankful that the gospel was redirected. It was held for 2,000 years by the Jews only. No other nation on earth had the Word of God. Only the Jews. It was directed to us. And here we have this assembly. We've been called together to worship Him. And we have been called together to provoke one another to love and to good works and to hold fast the profession of our faith and not to give it up like the Jews did so that we can make our calling and election sure. That's why we have a church. And we want to provoke each other the rest of this day that we can make our calling and election sure and know that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.